Swami starts this book with these wonderful words, here begins an adventure such, you have, such as you have never undertaken before, appropriately poetic for the book that we're studying. I was saying to uh, people just before we started meditating, I'll repeat even though some of you were here, that when Swamiji edited this commentary, he, he, he said afterwards that he felt himself poised between two minds because on the one hand there was Omar Khayyam who had written the original verses that he was trying to deeply tune into and then there was Master whose commentary he was working with and he said he felt them both with him while he was working and that they were very much in tune with each other but that they were two uh, distinctly separate souls uh, with separate vibrations that were working together to help him to bring this into fruition. I went onto the internet and uh, this picture that I'm handing out to all of you, I just found it on a website and I just like the look of it so much and I thought it would be enjoyable for all of us because what's happening to us is manifold as we study this which is it's not merely the ideas and the words of wisdom that are being expressed here but we are in contact with a saintly uh, God-realized consciousness that is not one that we normally um, are it's not in our line of gurus we're not normally praying to him unless although it has never been said he was the previous incarnation of one of the masters or one soul, some soul that we're in contact with, but I've never heard that said. Years ago when uh, Swami was with Master, Master made the comment that you shouldn't read the lives of all the saints, you should just read those that are in our line. And he mentioned Francis and Teresa of Avila and the others of our line is how he put it. Um, not too long ago I was having a discussion with Swamiji about that particular statement and asking Swamiji, you know, did he ever name any other names? What was he really saying by that? Are these souls that were really disciples of our masters, or what would it be? And Swamiji said that Master never brought it to a clearer focus than that. But the impression he had from it was that in, is that are in tune with our ray, which is to say, many of the Catholic saints were made saints for various reasons, such as they were willing to die for the faith, or they were. Extreme, extremely serviceful or uh, for political reasons. But those who would be in our line would be those for whom uh, communion, direct communion with God was the essence of their spiritual life. And, and so that, that would define those whose life stories and whose vibrations would put us more in tune with what we're doing. And it's good advice just for the devotee in general that it, sometimes if you mix too many different points of view, even if each is valid in itself, it does become confusing because you get inspired, but this one lived in such a different way than this one lived, um, you begin to think that maybe your own path is not the right way to go. So uh, Omar Khayyam is from the East, from Persia, ostensibly from the Muslim tradition, although uh, it would be debatable as to whether or not he was really any part of that tradition in any remote, even remote sense. There's certainly no evidence that he was. But nonetheless, his orientation was Persian. I mean, his life, his way of looking at things. And so it's the closest we come to sort of pulling that whole part of the world into our understanding. But it doesn't really help us because it's not really Islam that he's presenting. Perhaps it's Sufism, but really what it is is self-realization. Um, there's not that much known about his life. He's known more for being a scientist, an astronomer, and a mathematician, with the exception of these poems, than for being a saint. Of course, he's really most famous for the Rubaiyat, 
but he really spent his life as a scientist and a mathematician and did all sorts of uh, extraordinary, wrote books and experiments and theorems and explained things way ahead of his time, centuries ahead of his time, proposed mathematical solutions that it took people hundreds of years to figure out later. Which is just sort of interesting from a certain point of view because whereas in our lineage we have Rajasi Janakananda who was a, a millionaire, you know, we have Master who's a poet and uh, a saint, of course, Swamiji, but this man's a scientist. There's Luther Burbank, who was scientific, and uh, now Omar Khayyam, who's a mathematician. And from that point of view, it's, it's a sort of fun to realize, as Swami says, God inspires us in, in accordance with whatever the energy and the vibration that we ourselves are putting out. So there's a certain look on his face that you can see as, of exactness, and he was interested in astronomy, and he helped create according to the history, little history that's known of him, he helped reconfigure the calendar in a way that was so sophisticated that, again, he was so far ahead of his time talking about he, um, how the year is just slightly over 365 days, according to this history that I was reading. He figured it out to six decimal points, how much longer it is every year, which was quite remarkable. The, the historian writing it said it was remarkable for several reasons. One, that he could figure it out so exactly. Too that he was so confident that he was willing to do that and that it was exactly true. Um, some, some accounts of his life describe him in very simple terms, that he won the favor of a certain ruler, was given a pension, and was allowed to simply be a scholar his entire life. He didn't really want to have a position. He wanted the right to study and promote knowledge. And as he put it, when he was... When he was um, soliciting the, the commission, he said, and to pray for the longevity and success of the ruler. Uh, some accounts of his life are very short, and that's all they say, basically, that that's how he lived. Other accounts, perhaps drawn more from history or who knows, speak of the fact that it was a somewhat uh, turbulent time. And if you were um, serving at the behest of any particular ruler, then, of course, if that ruler fell out of favor, then you fell out of favor and you found yourself without a uh, patron for a time. And more detailed histories of his life speak of cycles that would last from anywhere from 10 to 20 years where he would be under the protection of some ruler, but then that ruler would be taken over by someone else and he would find himself on the wrong side of the equation until he was able to find himself another position with another court. Um, who knows? Some more fanciful biographies speak of him even being... Um, in hard times, you know, really out of favor, struggling to live, uh, not really uh, protected by anything around him. It's impossible to know from this point. It's also not, it's terrifically important. Those facts are more important to people who are trying to make his quatrains represent his life in some external way. The explanation Master gives is so uh, beyond the day-to-day -day for the most part that the actual details of his life don't matter a fraction. But it's sort of, it's always helpful, I think, to, when we're dealing with the lives of a saint or the exp divine expression of a holy person, to never forget that there was a real person behind that inspiration. It helps us when we try to tune into them because we, we really realize that even though we don't remember it or maybe it didn't happen, we could easily have walked the street with this man. He could have taught us directly. We could have heard these quatrains as he wrote them. He may have spoken them into our own ears when we were walking in other bodies. That everything 
that has everything that is divinely inspired comes through an instrument who is able to attune to that inspiration. Now, I say that also because many of you know that when Swamiji first published this book, when we first published this book a number of years ago, because it was um, challenging to read and unusual, uh, some of you have had a lifelong relationship with the Rubaiyat, but others of us have known nothing more than, you know, a jug of wine, a, a book of verse and thou, and really not much more. And also the commentaries are deep. The poem itself is deep, and so are the commentaries. And so in order to attune people a little bit more to um, what was really in there, we adopted them as our, as our Sunday reading. And we actually did the, uh, the whole book twice. We didn't do every single quatrain because it's 52 weeks a year, not 75, and some of them were, were just too long. And we did the whole cycle here in Palo Alto twice, two years of it. And I enjoyed it completely, although the theme of death, 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 you know, well, here we are again, and guess what we're talking about? We're talking about death. In as much as I think death is greatly inspiring to think about, I didn't mind it. But still, there is a kind of one note to a lot of it. But I certainly went through it and studied it many times. But I have to confess, I never really attuned to the Rubaiyat. I would read the quatrain and then move on to the commentary. And to me, it was always the commentary that I was relating to. In a very real sense, what I was doing is I was relating to Master. I was relating to Master's expression, Swamiji's um, poetic uh, editing, and how beautifully he brought into a focus what Master said and how poetically he took those words and so on. I tuned to all of that, but I didn't really get the Rubaiyat. It was nice, and I loved it. I mean, it was beautiful, but I never felt it. This time reading through, I, was, I just felt the Rubaiyat. And, and I could feel, and I hope some of you can also get into this, and we're going to do what we can to help you. I could just feel the consciousness behind it. That's why uh, uh, Master writes, too, he said, you know, by some divine law, these things are never lost. Um, uh, Sir Edward Fitzgerald uh, translated it for the first time, and the book didn't sell very well. So he said it was remaindered. It just sort of faded away, and then someone found it. And Dante, Dante became interested, and it just got more, it got more, um, suddenly it got more attention, and it, it came back up again. The music of Bach was lost for a long time, but by some divine law, not lost forever, because the power was there, and maybe it was just ahead of its time. Who can say? It's, it's all in God's doing. But, but there's a, because what is being communicated by the Rubaiyat is states of consciousness, not merely concepts, it certainly helps us to tune into the states of consciousness when the concepts are explained, so it becomes more than gibberish to us. But once we have some feeling for what the meaning of it is, it can also be, as Swami puts it perfectly, um, absorbed directly like music. Music doesn't have a verbal component or a conceptual component, and yet you can hear it and you can feel what uh, the composer was experiencing and that caused him to to put it into words and to, into sound in just that particular way. And so even with the translation, you can sort of just feel, especially when you have some, when your mind is at rest about the meaning, you can just feel the energy in there, and it's really wonderful to, to hear it that way. To that end, if you, if you don't already own, I could, would encourage you to um, consider buying the recorded tape set that Swami has, um, because 
he sings every quatrain. And of course he put that melody, and Joe's going to do those for us in just a moment. He put that melody to the verses, and somehow that melody really helps you feel how the music goes into you. Swamiji just said that verse just came, that melody just came to him. And he just realized that it was exactly right. And later people said, oh, but that melody is Persian. And of course Swami had no idea. But I think he's just attuned on some level and the truth of these things comes to him. So, um, what we'll do is I've encouraged in the notes that you all have no doubt received. Originally I was going to use take excerpts. But first of all, I just found it impossible. I couldn't even begin to think how to take excerpts. It's not a consistent story. According to uh, some things I read about it, Fitzgerald said that the, the, the tradition of these quatrains is it's not really in any particular sequence. He made some explanation of the sequence that was some obscure thing I couldn't understand, but the story doesn't go consistently. And he he's more or less says that the order is somewhat random. Perhaps it is, but perhaps it isn't, but I couldn't figure out how to pull anything out of it. Um, and then I realized if we did 15 each week, we could do the whole thing. So, so I sent you that little note, two every day and three on Sunday. That's all that's required. <laughs> and in fact, it's a fairly good way to do it because then you can just feel them. And next week I have to add that I think number 30 is quite a bit longer than the others. So you have to account for that when you're scheduling yourself. All right. Then, unless there are comments or questions... I just wanted to say one last thing. You know, when this when Swami Swami writes in the introduction to this that this was to edit this book was the first assignment that he received from his guru back when he was just a boy. And as he says in the introduction, it was just folly to imagine that he could actually do this work and he understood Master's rather elastic sense of time, which was that now meant this incarnation, not now, nineteen forty eight, forty nine or fifty. And so some 50 years later, Swami undertook the doing of this. No small thing to feel himself competent enough to be able to tune into what Master would want and then write this. It was an extraordinarily um, moving experience for Swami to do this. And I'll, give you, I'll just tell you a story. of After he had written it, he conceived of the idea that he ought to read it and turn it into an audio book. And at that time, uh, there was no uh, recording studio up at Ananda Village, I guess, or for some reason it wasn't an option. Why would it not have been an option? Because Avni was there, I don't know why. But in any case, they came down here and they did it uh, in this men, uh, Palo Alto studio with the um, engineer uh, who became a friend of ours, Robert Iriartboard is his name. And uh, Swami you know, worked out a system to record that. It took, it took a few days to sort of get the system down He's refined it even more, but there were people turning pages for him, and you know, so he didn't have to do anything but just stand there, and the book would appear, and all the business of all that you had to work that out. And he just did it day after day. It took up three or four days, I think, at least. And we'd bring in sandwiches. He was staying in our house since it was here. We'd, the first day, we tried to go out to eat, but it was so crazy. So we'd bring in sandwiches and just take a short period of time and have a little food, and then he'd go right back to work. When he got very, very close to the end, and Swami, you know, he, he, he's very seldom emotional in any way. We got very close to the end. It might have been almost the last quatrain or, or one of the very last ones. Swami tried to read and then he began to cry. And he tried to pull himself together and then he began to cry again. And finally, and I've never seen him like this, he was just sobbing. And 
they kept the tape running. So somewhere it's on the tape, the whole experience. And he finally managed to say, he said, uh, it's so beautiful. He said, it's just so beautiful. And then he said something about uh, the experience of having done it. What an extraordinary thing. And you could also see, you know, this was 50 years after his, his master had passed, and 50 years since he told him this. And there was so much... So there's been so much. There was so much opposition to Swami's right to be a disciple, and all the people that he relied upon turned against him and told him he couldn't do it. And even as he was doing this book, Marina Lini was editing it, and the two books came out at the same time from S.R.F. and Anand, and it was just so nutty. But there was just you could see that Swami just um, all that effort and all the the pain and suffering and the determination was all just focused in that. And, it was quite some minutes, and he made several false starts before he mastered himself to finish. And I don't know, I've never listened very closely for whether you can hear that in the last few quatrains or if they finally got a version where he just sounds the same. But every time I read this, and I, I remember all the effort that he put into it and what it, it meant to him to do it too, that's just one more reason why it's just such an extraordinary story. It's sort of our... Um, Swami's victory of discipleship, which is also ours, because without his determination to have held strong to Master's call to him, we wouldn't have all of this. And this was this was his effort to do that for us. Um, yes. Absolutely, because it was, yeah. No, no. Oh, no, absolutely, and he felt it unequivocally because he was, he's created a book of masters. You know, whatever he's created doesn't matter to him, but what he's, he's created now for the ages is master's book. Oh, absolutely. The only thing that's topped it since was writing God is for everyone. But see, those are master's books. Then he gets he gets to write for his guru, not just um, of his guru, but for his guru. So, yeah, that's why he said that. And because he had to write as master, and imagine the exercise and attunement that that would be. And he also got to tune into Markayam at the same time. And it wasn't merely like writing the thoughts and teachings of master. He had to write as master. I mean, he had master's words right in front of him. He just had to put them into an arranged order more um, accessible to us than the way Master just let them flow out. Master would just, you know, let it flow out in this tremendous flow of inspiration and tell you what it all meant, but he didn't necessarily tell you in the most efficient or the most cogent, or the most orderly manner, um, and that was left for Swami to work out. But as he, as he writes so carefully, he never added any thoughts. He just took Master's thoughts and clarified them for us. But he had to make sure he knew them, because sometimes the points were very obscure, so he had to be certain that he was not misunderstanding. You know, it's very easy to do. He had to be courageous and, and cautious simultaneously, so it was tricky. Sandy? 
no longer had access to Master's original writings, what exactly was he in? Um, no, he, the, the entire Rubaiyat commentary was written and printed as Master wrote it in the SRF magazines during Master's lifetime. And so, and everything that was printed during Master's lifetime in the magazines was verbatim what Master wrote. What was printed in the, mag, in the uh, magazines as Master's only began to change after he died, which is true also of the Gita commentary, as far as we can tell. Okay? But the Gita, you see, went many years after 1975, so half the Gita is, is unreliable but virtually all of the Rubaiyat, or all of the Rubaiyat. There's some little fraction, I can't remember, it's some little part, but nonetheless, it was virtually all written. And Swami felt, Swami had read it, and when he was reading the magazine articles, he felt very confident. When he reads the Gita commentaries that were published in the magazine after Master's passing, he doesn't feel confident at all, because it doesn't sound like what he read in too many ways, whereas the Rubaiyat did, so he felt very comfortable. Okay? All right. Now, what we're going to do is, um, Joe is going to sing for us, all from beginning to end, the 15 quatrains that we're going to work with tonight, and then we'll just uh, begin to talk about them. Okay. Cries to the rose, 
that yellow cheek of hers to incarnate Fill the cup, and in the fire of spring, the winter garden of repentance cling. The bird of time has but a little way to fly, and lo, the bird is on the wing. And look, a thousand blossoms with the day woke, and a thousand scattered into clay. And this first summer month that brings the rose shall take Jamshid and Kaigobad away. But come with old Kayam and leave the lot of Kaigobad and Kaikro's roof for God. Rustam lay about him as he will, or Hatim Tai cry supper, heed them not. With me along some strip of herbage strong, that just divides the desert from the soul. My name of slave and sultan scarce is known. And pity Sultan Mahmud on his throne. Here with a loaf of bread beneath the bough, a flask of wine, a book of verse, and thou beside me singing in the wilderness. And wilderness is paradise now. How sweet is mortal sovereignty, thinks some. Others, how blessed the paradise to come. Ah, take the cash in hand and wave the rest. Oh, the brave music of a distant drum. And to the rose that blows about us, Oh, laughing, she says, into the world I blow. At once the silken tassel of my purse tear, and its treasure on the garden throw. The worldly hope men set their hearts upon turns ashes, or it prospers, and anon. Like snow upon the desert's dusty face, lighting a little hour or two, is gone. And those who husbanded the golden grain, and those who flung it to the winds like rain, like to know such orient earth are turned as buried once men want to dug up again. That's beautiful. Let's just have a moment of silence before we talk. Thank you, Joe. Darmini would play the flute, and she would play the flute while the 
was being read, but the flute was so piercing that we kept moving her back and back, and so she would stand in the bell tower with the door open and play her flute while someone would read from up here, and it would just be like this distant sound of the melody of the uh, music for reading the Rubaiyat by. It was just so beautiful. Swamiji did, um, he wrote a whole piece of music called I, Omar, which is on this CD. And this is music to listen to while reading the Rubaiyat. And it's actually, it's, it's really beautiful. So it, if you want to, it'll help you to uh, absorb the vibrations better. And I, I discovered we have one copy of this product, which is called The Bird of Time, in which uh, he actually reads some of the quatrains to this music. He put it together in this one CD. Because the other, now that I'm just doing all this here, the other, which is this, which is the whole commentary read, he reads every word except the meanings, the definitions. He didn't read the definitions. He sings with the sound of a, a tambour behind him. He reads the poetic translation to the sound of the tambour, and then there's no background, and then he reads the rest of the expanded meaning. There's nothing that has the 75 quatrains just sung straight through. Would be a nice home project if somebody wanted to do that. Okay. Can I move back here? Am I going to be okay? How close can I go to here? Okay. What I think I want to do, and it's sort of like I, I'm not really quite sure how to do this. I think we're going to do this a little bit like we did Whispers, which is it's a little between the poetry and the meaning of it. So I don't know, especially tonight, if we'll cover all 15 quatrains, but we'll just, because they're not dependent one upon another. What I found to be extremely helpful is what I'm going to sort of do with you, which is, Swami made the choice in the SRF version of this, and, and the way Master originally published it, he put the definitions of the words immediately after the quatrain. But Swamiji's feeling was that it, it made you so left brain so fast that he put it farther on. And yet at the same time, I found it very helpful to really sort of analyze the quatrain for what it really means and translate it in my mind into very plain words because even the paraphrase is still poetic. So as I went through and I absorbed more and more clearly really what the quatrain was speaking of, then I found it more and more enjoyable to read them. So I think we'll just start the first one, Awake for Morning in the Bowl of Night. Um, Swamiji explains to us that morning in this case, something else that makes these quatrains confusing is you get it all fixed in your mind what the words mean and then they mean something else the next time. Sometimes rose has divine meaning, sometimes it has a, a worldly meaning. You know, sometimes the words wine tends to always mean divine intoxicant, and the beloved is always the divine. But some of the other words shift around a lot. So asking for a kind of simple consistency is too much to ask in these. But in this case, he speaks of the morning as the, is the time when we are living our lives in an ordinary way, and then somehow something comes. And it makes us realize that it's not, it's not what we thought it was. And it's not necessarily true that you can put a, an exact uh, time and place at, at the time when you first woke up, when the morning of divine realization began for you. Some of us can remember from childhood, sort of different moments in childhood when we knew, we began to think that things were different. I remember a friend of mine when she was 10, she said to herself, Remember what it really feels like to be a child so that later when you get older you won't forget that it wasn't as much fun as everybody thinks it is. And you know, part of that, in her case, she's a devotee of Ananda, was really very much 
wanting to, to not get trapped by delusion again. She wasn't enough of a yogi to realize what, was, what she was really saying, but there was part of her that realized it had gotten sucked into the dream, and it didn't want to get sucked in again, and she was really trying very hard to keep that thought in her mind. Um, sometimes, of course, for us, it was when you saw Autobiography of a Yogi, or I remember clearly the first time I saw Swami Kriyananda. I remember nothing of the, of the talk he gave that night, nothing, not a single word. But I remember the sight of him walking down the aisle. That was 1969 in November. And, uh, and his presence communicated to me th this concept. He has what I want. And that was exactly given how I thought about it in my mind. I didn't know what it was, but I knew he had it and I wanted it. And there's just sort of that moment when you begin to awake. And um, Master once said to Brother Norman, who was a big man with a big body, Master turned to Norman one day and started very strongly saying, Get out, Norman, get out, get out. And at first Norman didn't know what he was saying, and then he went on to say, Just get out of that body, get out of delusion, get out of the thoughts that hold you. And so the Master often sort of works hard with us, even when we do the more advanced kriyas, which most of you have had. You know, it, it talks about how you say, make a certain movement with your body and you, you strike a psychophysical blow on the chakra with the movement of the body. I mean, how many of us have contemplated, you know, we're striking a blow on the chakra with the action that we're making by our concentration and our focus of energy. And it's sort of like, it, it's just that uh, force. Master um, encouraged the playing of the drum with Kirtan, and Swami tells that story of how Dr. Lewis, being, a, a, as Swami just puts it so simply, a Boston dentist, without further explanation. Dr. Lewis was a Boston dentist, and he found the, the drumming, the Indian drumming, especially when Master did it, just overwhelming. And Master wanted Dr. Lewis to become more dynamic in his understanding, and he said, get into it, Doctor. It, the, the drum beats loosen the karma in the spine. And it's just sort of hard to think, you know, the thump, thump, thump of the drumming, loosening the karma in the spine. You can't quite get your mind around it. But what it is, they're, they're trying to make us think in a very dynamic way. And so uh, his first quatrain is awake. Awake, he says. And it's, a, it's all capitals with an exclamation point. Awake. You know, that's what's trying to happen here. Come out of the delusion. Uh, for morning, the dawn of awakening has come. The bowl of night. Such a beautiful image, isn't it? The bowl of night. You sort of see yourself like trapped under this bowl of night, which is all dark. And we live within this shell. They made that ridiculous, and I thought very funny movie. Was it called Truman? Was that the name of it? The one where the man turned out to actually be in a movie? Yeah, The Truman Show. And there was like this edge to the world that he'd been living in, and it was all a fake, which is, of course, exactly what's true. But in this case, the bowl, it's a bowl because it appears to be seamless. There's this bowl of night that we live in, and everybody else lives here with us. And so we all think of it as normal, you know. But morning has come to that bowl of night, and this stone has happened, has flung the stone. This morning has come, and we flung the stone, and Swami calls it so beautifully, delusion-shattering actions. You know, so you read this, and you read it with knowing that. Awake from morning in the bowl of night. The dawn is coming to this dark place that we call home. And our own awakening has flung the stone that puts the stars to flight. And the stars, of course, are just reflected light. So that stone of our own determination 
has driven those stars away. We're not going to be satisfied anymore with just this reflected light. And then he calls it falsely attractive material desires. You know, those things that seem to glisten with their own light, but in fact are just reflecting the light of the divine that have no power of their own to satisfy us. You know, this is the, everything in this world is a symbol. You can start anywhere. And, and if you contemplate it long enough, it'll begin to speak to you of higher truths. That's what's so, again, so exquisite about this poem. He just uses these images of life as we know it. But with his consciousness, strings together these images and then says something so unexpected. So unexpected that it's taken another master to tell us what it is. And then we have the hunter of the East, the Eastern wisdom, which is the, and you have again this image, the hunter has, I always see him every time I read this, the hunter of the East in my mental sky appears astride this powerful horse and he's extremely upright and quite sort of, if not large, very, very strong and he has sort of holding out some uh, weapon, some undefined weapon that's very sharp and very shiny. And so the hunter of the East has arrived and so I think of all my little delusions just quivering over in the corner because the hunter of the East has arrived. You know, these are all, you can go on and on with these words, but, but remember when we were doing the Whispers from Eternity, I was, I was saying to you, you know, if you just say, like Master, the way Master put it, is he said, if you concentrate long enough, the ink and the paper will reveal to you the consciousness that was put behind those words. And this isn't merely like an English class where we're trying to analyze what the poet meant. What we're really trying to do is we're trying to feel what Omar Khayyam saw when he wrote this. And he saw it. He saw it just like that. He saw the devotees, and either it was his own self he was speaking of, or he was speaking to his disciples, awake from the bowl of night, give up these dim, false stars, because the hunter of the East, the divine wisdom that is within you, has come. And then he says, and the hunter of the east has caught the sultan's turret. And the sultan's turret, of course, is the sultan is already big and worldly and powerful, and then even to do that even more, he makes his castle wall go up even higher, you know, so that all everybody little has to see. And so here, this one little, um, this one little wave has gotten himself a position on the ocean, and he's building it up out there, and he's trying to hold his position but then this hunter comes, and the hunter of the East comes, and he takes a noose of divine understanding, and he wraps it around that turret, and he's just going to pull it down. And so all of this, this all these wonderful images in these four lines of poetry with such mastery, awake for morning in the bowl of night, has flung the stone that puts the stars to flight, and lo, the hunter of the East has caught the sultan's turret in a noose, of light. Isn't that marvelous? And so then Swami, of course, goes on. Thus sang the inner silence, he says, forsake the sleep of ignorance and awake. For dawn of wisdom has flung into the dark bowl of your unknowing, the stone of spiritual discipline. He does put that word in there, doesn't he, of spiritual discipline. What gives the stone its hardness? What gives the stone its hardness is our own willpower put behind it. And he, he doesn't just use an image, in this case he doesn't use a soft one, he uses a strong one. Because it's the stone of our willingness to undergo this great battle. The stone of spiritual discipline, that weapon of divine power that can break the bowl. In other words, we set 
our higher self against our lower self. And if we do that with power, then the change will come. And then he says, the hunter of the east, the, the wisdom of the east, has cast a noose of light to encircle the kindly minaret of your egoic pride, wisdom to free you at last from the long night of spiritual ignorance. And it's also so poignant the way he writes that. You know, because we're on all sides of this. We are the kingly minaret of pride, and yet we're rescued by this hunter of the east, which is our own understanding, and at the same time, it can become God's grace coming down to us that just comes. And we think also, think of all the times in your life when the kingly minaret of your pride has been lassoed by the noose of light and you didn't really want it to happen. You know, that you're just sort of going along and suddenly find yourself awakening against your will and that somebody has flung the stone and somebody has lassoed you and somebody has put you down under the wheels of fate. And so then you have to realize again that this hunter of the east of wisdom is not your enemy but your friend. And the more we can sort of tune into these things and make them our friends, the more powerful it will be. Any comments or thoughts about that one? Isn't that beautiful? I just love it. And then the second one is dreaming when dawn's left hand was in the sky. I heard a voice within the tavern cry, Awake, my little ones, and fill the cup before life's liquor in the cup be dry. So many times there's such a sense of urgency about this. The one theme of the Rubaiyat is, oh, you have no idea how short life is. I was reflecting on that when I was reading this today about how just constantly through these quatrains he's always saying to you, you're here for such a short time and then you're gone. And, and I was sort of just trying to get my consciousness around what it really looks like to really know that. Now, all of us know that to some extent. I mean, for the most part, the lives we've chosen have been to put our faith in God. You know, many of us have staked ourselves quite far out on the gamble that this is really all going to turn out to be true. I remember when I was a very small child visiting my grandfather in, in uh, Key West, Florida, and he was a practicing Jew. And uh, I remember one Friday night he was wearing his his uh, prayer shawl and going off to the synagogue and we were Jews but we weren't practicing Jews and I didn't really understand much of it and I like children will I said grandpa do you really believe all this and he answered me by saying you know this was not a very spiritually inspired answer but it was an honest one he said well I don't know but I figure if it turns out and he thought after I die if it turns out not to be true I won't know and if it turns out to be true, I'll be glad <laughs> that I followed it, which is not really much of a reason, you know. But nonetheless, um, what what I was what I was feeling, just sort of remembering him and remembering the way people live in this world, that there's this unwillingness, which is based on an inability to really heed what the masters are saying. I mean, the Masters say, and, and Omar Khayyam says it over and over again, and we have to get comfortable with it or we can't absorb this message. You know, stop thinking that your life depends on the material reality. Stop trying to make your security in all these other ways and make your satisfaction. Just stop doing it because as soon as you die, you will see, you will look back, and you will just realize this life has been something completely other than you thought it was. Um, I recently saw one of those old episodes of Candid Camera. 
You know, remember that funny show where they, they just draw people into bizarre, doing bizarre things, and then at a certain point they tell them that they're on candid camera? One of my favorites I remember was they had some daffy woman drive uh, into gas stations repeatedly and ask the gas station attendants, this was at the time when there were such things, to uh, please change the air in her tires because it felt stale to her. <laughs> you know, she would just, just kept trying to persuade them that this was a real problem she was having, that she was having trouble driving because she could feel the stale air in the tires. Finally, you know, somebody was willing to just flatten all her tires and fill them up again, and then they tell them that he's on the camera. Well, it's sort of like, you know, when a person gets sucked into a practical joke like that, you just sort of run into the joke until something snaps you out of it and you realize that it's not so Swami played one on me once that I will never forget. I've shared it with you, some, some of you. I had, um, I was trying to break a bad habit of speaking impulsively and saying things I didn't really meant, mean, but my method of doing it was not an attractive one, which is I would get halfway into something and then I would say, oh, never mind, like that. So it would just be, it was very irritating to people. I didn't realize how irritating until this. I, I, at that time, Swamiji was working on the path, I believe, or maybe I was just his, it was during the year or two years that I was his secretary. And about four in the afternoon, every afternoon, we'd bring the, Seva and I would bring the mail over in Kalyani. There was only, the mail drop was down at the farm. There was no telephones. You know, it was, he was just like in the wilderness and then we'd come over with the news of the day. And uh, every day at four. And so I came over one day and Swami started speaking to me at some point and he said, you know, Asha, I was meditating this afternoon. He, was, he had a very serious look on his face. And I was meditating, and the, the, the image of you came into my mind, and I, I could feel that Master really had a message for you. Oh, never mind. <laughs> you know, I mean, he just got me. I was like, oh, you know, what on earth is he going to say? And he got me all the way to there, and then he said that. And I said, oh, it's that irritating, huh? And he said, yes. <laughs> but it's a, you know, that was a one minute uh, capturing me. This is a 70 or 80 year capturing. But what the masters are trying to say to us so profoundly is as soon as you're not in it, it's that clear. It's just that clear. Oh my God, how could I ever have mistaken this human life for something enduring? How could I ever have gotten sucked in again? into thinking that it was the material realities of things that mattered instead of my consciousness in the midst of it. How could I ever have forgotten? And we just don't even know how we could ever have been trapped. That's Maya. That's what Maya is about. That's why that, that picture is so, so marvelous of the temptress coming in. And so you have to really uh, constantly be looking for that um, sense of, aha, I get the joke. Because that's what Omar Khayyam is doing over and over and over and over and over again. He's saying, don't imagine for a moment that this life is anything but a training ground for eternity. It doesn't exist, it doesn't last, it means nothing. Use your time here to train for eternity. That is the purpose. Otherwise, you will get caught out. So he, he says in here, dawn's left hand, he calls it as the first light of wisdom dawning, almost the false dawn, just at the very beginning. And a voice, it almost always, is consistently the voice of soul intuition or the voice of God. And the tavern, in this case, is the place where you drink the wine. 
And so since wine is always the image of divine intoxication, the tavern is the place where you can achieve it. And so he says, we were still half asleep when wisdom began to come to us, and then we heard the inner voice of soul intuition uh, within the tavern, within, he calls it, the, uh, the sanctum of inner silence. And then that inner voice says, awake, my little ones. It's so sweet. My little ones are the, um, the spiritually undeveloped thoughts within us. And you have this, this is so dear, it's like the voice of intuition is trying to just coax us in. Superconsciousness is trying to get all our mental citizens into the game. From within the inner self, it says, awake, my little ones, and fill the cup, and the cup of life, fill it with spiritual consciousness, until before the whole of life is gone, and this life is over. So it's just like, just as this first thought begins to come, our intuition says, act now, or else this life will be gone. And, and that's, that's what he wants us to meditate on. What am I really doing? If I were to be called into the infinite tomorrow, how would I, would I be able to look back and what would I be able to say? I had a very interesting moment uh, at one point in my life when I became very insecure about my spiritual life. And I was sort of falling into this uh, sort of downward spiral of fear, of failure and fear of many things. And I didn't want to go there. And I, I, I hit upon an exercise which has served me very well many times. I, I think in this light of the story Swami tells of him going once to visit one of Master's devotees who was in the hospital, and the man was dying. And he was lying on his deathbed, and he was saying, oh, I've done so many wrong things in my life. And he was just overcome with uh, disappointment in himself over the way he'd lived his life. And when Swami went back and spoke to Master and reported that this is how the devotee was behaving, Master looked very sad. And he said, oh, I wish he wasn't thinking like that. Meaning, I wish he wasn't dying with such a negative sense of self. Because then, of course, he'll take that into the next world and he'll have to take it into the next life. He said so easily he could have been thinking about all that had gone right for him. He didn't have to think of how all that had gone badly. In that context, I, I have sometimes tried to extricate myself from unhappiness by visualizing that this life has ended. I had a dream once of dying and it was just a marvelous dream in which I just sort of, I, was, I had my head cut off and just as the, the big axe came down, just as it was hitting my neck, I remember just before it hit, oh, the soul goes out of the body before this happens, you're not really going to suffer. And just at that instant, I started rising up and the whole scene of my life just began to go away. And this little voice within me said, Bye-bye, Asha. <laughs> it was so dear. I can still remember how it felt. And so imagining it being as simple as that. You know, you see people in these horrific accidents, but just before the body is smashed to bits, the soul leaves. Because it knows it's going to happen. Why stay around? It's going anyway. Sometimes, of course, they have to come back. But they always leave before the moment of. But in that context, it's very beautiful to imagine, imagine that you are standing in front of God and Guru in the way that all the stories tell us that it happens. And you are having to account for your whole life. You know, how will you feel? And, and, and especially if you think of it, and I don't mean this to increase guilt, but just the opposite. If you think of a loving master who understands that you tried your hardest, and then you think of all those good things that we've already done, and you don't think anymore about everything you could have done. But you just think, 
I've done a lot. I've done a lot that was good. Maybe I sacrificed my spiritual potential in this way, in this way, in this way, but I didn't waste my life. And then just rest in that. Okay, so maybe I have added a couple of more incarnations on that I could have cut off. That's no biggie, right? So when the little voice says, you know, come, the voice calls from the tavern, come inside, my little ones, wake up. We want to think of that in a kind way. Yes, I will come. All my little spiritual aspirations, I will come. We'll just herd them all together and we'll awake and we'll go into the tavern and we'll drink the wine of divine consciousness and we will become free. We will become free. That's what he wants us to understand. I'll do one more and then we'll take a break. And as the cock crew, those who stood before the tavern shouted, Open then the door. You know how little while we have to stay, and once departed may return no more. And again, the the sound of the cock crowing is the awakening wisdom heralds the divine dawn within. Now, have you ever heard a rooster crow? You know what a sound that is? It's not a sound you can sleep through. It's just an overwhelmingly loud sound as the cock crows. And so sometimes it's very good thing. It's a very powerful image. David and I were traveling once, and we went to so much trouble to find a quiet hotel, you know. So I was in one of my extremely picky moods, and I took us through four different hotels before I was satisfied with the one that we had. We finally settled into it. We went down to take a nap. And there was a barnyard, just like one lot over. And there was a rooster who had no sense of night or day. And he just, you know, cuckooed the whole time. And it was just too ridiculous. So we just stayed there and didn't sleep because it was too absurd. But it's a very loud sound. Let me just say that. And it's, it's sort of a, it's a loud, it's a wild sound. You know, because it's that animal just bringing it forth. And he, and he sees the light and he makes that cry. And so as that, when that sound comes, when there's awakening wisdom heralded the divine dawn within, and so now our wisdom has more power, the tavern door again is the doorway to the inner self. How little while we have to stay. So those who stood before the tavern, those of us who wanted to get in, how little while we have to stay. Life is such a brief experience. It's such an odd thing to contemplate it because we don't want to think all the time about how brief it is. But the masters always say that. So you have to take that very seriously. And when they say that, you have to sort of grasp that without running away from the present moment. But you just somehow have to feel the moment in eternity. Now the power of that also is how very relaxed it can make us. You know, the, the more as I was first learning about the concept of reincarnation, the more relaxed I became about so many things because there was this sense of in a paradoxical way that I had as much time as I needed you know sometimes there's this terrible pressure that I have to do it now and I I don't have a time to do it and I have to deal with this and I have to do that and I have to do my craze and I have to raise my child and I have to go to work all the time and I have to read 15 quatrains before next Tuesday just all these different things that affect us and what if I don't get my kriyas right and And on one hand, there is a sense of urgency in the sense that life comes and life goes. But on the other hand, life coming and life going means nothing. And once we're on this track, yes, you may be in this body with this particular name, just like my wonderful dream where I just said goodbye to Asha, because as such, you know, once it's over, it's over. It never repeats itself exactly like this. But Swami himself also, I remember him saying so emphatically, this was the year my mother died, he kept saying, death is nothing. 
He said, nothing happens. Nothing changes, nothing happens. He said, you are just exactly the same. You just take off your sweater, which is your body, and then you're just the same. And so, on one hand, he, he says, you know, you're just here for such a little, little while. But what he's really saying by that is that, that this life is part of such a longer story that you need to, to use this life to get focused in the right direction. Because all the details of this life will come and go, but the essence of your consciousness in the tavern of the inner self. So we begin to clamor at the door. And then once we say, once we once departed, um, we may return no more. And then he talks very much about how um, earthly desires force us to return. But if we can become fully God conscious, we'll be free of those. And so the cock is crowing and awakening us to this possibility. And so we want to clamor to get into that inner door so that once we depart, we won't be forced to come back anymore. And it's, it's not out of uh, hatred for this world. It's out of extraordinary love for the possibility of being free. And that's what he's trying to get us to feel, is that freedom. So let's take a little bit of a break. Without knowing for a certainty, I believe that the word rubaiyat means like verse or something, or like it means quatrain. We speak of the quatrains of the rubaiyat, which would be redundant in a sense, but I think rubaiyat is the form of poetry. Is that correct? The, that's the way Swami uses it. It's used like a noun that isn't really a proper noun. Swami refers to the, the, you know, the words in, in, the rub, in these rubaiyat. Sometimes it's used as a plural noun and not necessarily a capital R noun. Every time I've seen it used, that's how it's used. Uh, Fitzgerald says in, his, in something that he wrote that the rubaiyat are independent stanzas. And that makes you feel that each verse is... I, it might re, re, refer to this, the particular form of the poetry, I think. Four lines, two rhymes, one's not a rhyme and the last one is a rhyme. It may be that narrow. That it was the style. It was the style of the times, as I understand it. It wasn't anything he invented. That many people wrote rubaiyat, like haiku. Um, I'm, I'm going beyond myself to say that, but that's the impression I have, that rubaiyat would be the equivalent of the word haiku. <laughs> so. Fitzgerald, uh, you, you, you see it used in sentences as if it were plural. You know, these rubaiyat. You know, the, that's what he says specifically, these rubaiyat are independent stanzas. That was the sentence that I read. So, okay. Any other questions or comments? Uh, if anybody finds out more specifically next week, tell us. Yeah? Was Fitzgerald a Persian scholar? No, he was an Englishman. And, uh, he, yeah, he had it in, no, he translated it. So he must have been, a, he must have known the Persian himself. It was he himself who translated it. He translated it five times. But Master said the first one was the best one. Oddly enough, Fitzgerald apparently never understood that it wasn't a, a worldly poem. Fitzgerald sort of scoffed at people who tried to say it was a devotional poem. And the introduction he wrote for it just speaks about how um, Omar Khayyam was just a worldly man. He didn't have any interest in religion. It, well, the, the extraordinary thing is that he could, he could translate it so beautifully and not understand it. Just odd, isn't it? Yeah. But who knows? You know, maybe we, we say one thing and we really know another thing in our heart. You don't know why people say what they say. How often people say really dumb things. 
I mean, just, you know, super dumb things that don't make any sense. So it happens all the time. In spite of himself. But okay, apparently, the more he worked on it, the worse it got, so. Uh, Shivani had a class paper from 94 or 95 that I was listening to. It said, Rubaiyat means quatrain. Means quatrain. Okay, so when we say the quatrain of the Rubaiyat, we're actually being redundant, but there you are. We're going to keep saying it because everyone else does. Okay. Well, you know, it didn't go anywhere anyway. It just got lost. It's, it's possible, though the power, what, what kept it was nobody's opinion. It was just the inherent power of it. It couldn't go away. Because people read it and just loved it for the music of it. It was music, is what it is to people. It's just music. And they hear the music and they feel the power of the music. And even if you don't, can't put a rational meaning on it, the words are music, the way he translated it. Yeah, so they couldn't get rid of it. And you, you might think that Fitzgerald was keeping the secret, but no one else seems to think that. <laughs> they just think that the secret was kept from Fitzgerald, so there you have it. <laughs> but think what good karma he got. So he'll be brighter the next time around. You know, I, you, I just love pictures of, like, he goes into the astral world and he says, oh, what a chump I was. <laughs> But who's to say? <laughs> all right. Let's <laughs> smile, you're on candid camera, you know. Oh gosh, what a fool I made of myself. Okay, any other comments or thoughts? Obviously, we don't have time to do all 15. In future weeks, we may have more time, but we may not. We'll see. So I'm just going to, you know, I want us to read it all, but then we'll just do what we feel like doing. I wanted to read Quatrain 10, if you don't mind. With me along some with me along some strip of herbage strewn, that just divides the desert from the sown, where name of slave and sultan scarce is known, and pity Sultan Mahmud on his throne. This is so interesting because Master interprets this to be the strip of herbage between the desert and the sown is that line that allows us to escape into superconsciousness that comes where the conscious and the subconscious meet. And it, it, that whole concept is such an interesting one. So, so much of the time, because whenever we're like, we do a class, we write, you know, subconscious, conscious, superconscious, and we think about, well, now I'm subconscious, first I'm subconscious, then I'm conscious, then I'm superconscious, and we tend to think we're going in a straight line. One of the, my very early comment I, I knew from a friend of mine who was instrumental in bringing me onto the spiritual path, and he was, he was a, a big sleeper. I mean, he would, I mean, literally, he would, like, sleep a lot. When I knew him, he was in graduate school, and he used to deal with his frustration at being in graduate school by sleeping many, many, many hours. So it was sort of part of his nature. And later, when I knew him at Ananda, and he was on the spiritual path, he told me that there were three states of consciousness and that he felt very good because he had mastered one. <laughs> I often think, well, I'm 33% of the way there because I'm very good at being subconscious. But it's a little, like, not exactly how it happens. And, and so Swamiji, you know, makes, uh, and Master talks about you concentrate on the horizon line and Swami gives us advice. You concentrate on the line when the eyes are barely open. You think of the eyebrows forming a line. 
and and uh, he talks about you can escape into into super consciousness at just that point when you're neither subconscious nor conscious. You're just coming out of sleep, just falling into sleep. You can outsmart it and go the other direction. And it's it's it the image that I have really come to appreciate is. Um, what, what am I trying to say about it? Let me get this more clear in my mind. That when we withdraw from uh, the, the conscious world, we come to this junction point. Whenever I would teach meditation one, I would always draw it like this. I'd make this sort of Y lying on its side. And this was sort of to break the linear concept. This being the subconscious realm here, this being um, the superconscious realm, and this being the conscious realm. And when we fall asleep, and when we go into meditation both, we withdraw from the conscious level. And you know that sleep and uh, meditation look a lot the same, don't, we? don't they? You stop talking, you stop eating, you stop moving, you stop uh, t uh, relating to the world around you, you just withdraw from the conscious level. And then you come right to this little junction point where the subconscious and the conscious meet. You know, this little star right here, right? And then at that point, if you increase your energy, you can go up into superconsciousness. And if you decrease your energy, you'll then go to sleep. And so sometimes when we're meditating, we're right here at this junction point, and we're, we're perhaps we're doing kriyas and we're just having being really dynamic. But then we begin to lower our energy instead and because we have withdrawn from the conscious realm, we just fall back down into the subconscious realm. And it seems so odd because in meditation you seem to sort of alternate between the superconscious and the subconscious. And you sort of wonder where is that middle state in there. But it's because you've come to this junction point and you're, the, way, the way you're dealing with the energy at that junction point. It's, it's very important to, to appreciate that, um, the, the subtlety of that. Because you... you a lot of times people will, not just in meditation, but they withdraw from active participation in life on the pretense of becoming superconscious, but actually become less energetic. You know, you'll see people like, why aren't people who just don't give a damn, why are they not spiritual? You know, and why is it that people who've never made anything of their life because they're, they, they're indifferent to worldly accomplishments, why do they not necessarily seem more spiritual even than people who have been very successful in the world? Do you understand what I mean? Because they've withdrawn at that point, but they've gone subconscious rather than superconscious. It's a very fine line. So anything that ever um, reminds us of that fine line has always been particularly attractive to me. Uh, because it, because it's, a, it's one of those thoughts that I heard for many years and I never quite understood it. I never could quite see um, what, what it is that you were working with. And then he describes that the desert is just where everything is buried, all this past, sort of nothing is alive there anymore, and yet, like a civilization that's buried. You, you think sometimes they, they find, you know, under the deserts. I, I know um, Swamiji commented once, I think he was quoting Master in this, that a lot of the deserts in, in Africa or just or have buried, civilizations have been buried there because some of those civilizations, Master said, got off. They got into black magic, they got dark, and so the, the, the sands have just blown over them. And they're just, like the land itself is being purified of those bad vibrations, and that's where those big deserts come from. So I think, too, the desert 
I mean, sometimes the desert can mean the wilderness of meditation, but in this case, it means just the subconscious, lifeless part of ourselves, where everything is buried under the sand. And then the sown is our present activities, the conscious mind. And then there's this little strip of herbage. There's this, this growing part, right? This, this little piece where we can be. And Omar Khayyam says, with me, come with the divine wisdom, follow the ancient wisdom. And I, I just, again, you sort of see this picture of Omar Khayyam, and you sort of see yourself walking on the street, and he says, come, you know, leave behind both your subconscious self and your conscious involvement, and come with me to this fine place of divine understanding that just divides, it's just this little line that just divides it, where name of Slayton and Sultan scarce is known. And so it says, um, all those ideas of the subconscious mind, that you're slave to your past, you don't remember those, and the powerful things of the world don't come there either. And in that state, even the most powerful person in this world is someone to be pitied. And it's, it's so sweet. You know, the masters, remember in Autobiography of a Yogi, the, uh, uh, the saint, Baduri Mahashaya, what did they call him? Can't suddenly sleepless. sleepless saint. Yes, that's what I was going to say, but I couldn't remember. And that he he gave up a fortune to become a, a holy man. And they say, "Oh, you gave up all this wealth to follow the spiritual path." And he answers back by saying, "If I got the the, the right saint, he says, uh, worldly people are the true paupers." He said, "I gave up a handful of rubies for an infinity of, of rupees for an infinity of bliss." And so the the spiritual person looks and sees people chasing this foolish dream. And what is the story of, was it Alexander who came to see the wise man? And I, they, I can't remember the characters in the play, but it was some great worldly person coming to see some sage and offered him everything. And he said, well, I don't want it. What do you, I don't want that. And then the great warrior, I think it was Alexander, said, what can I give you? He said, well, you could move a little to the side, you're blocking the sun. <laughs> I mean, who knows if it ever happened, but it's such a glorious story. But we need to measure ourselves against such stories. You know, in, in one context, many of you were there, uh, not this last year, but the year before when Swami came to visit, and he uh, was giving a talk to a satsang group, and he was talking about the level of renunciation at which he has lived his life. And he was speaking of the fact that when he was kicked out of SRF and he came to live with his parents and he had to start teaching and his parents wanted to give him a car. And he, he said, I cannot express to you how painful it was for me to accept that car. He said, I was a monk. I had given up everything. I never intended to own anything again. And yet at the same time he said, I saw that I would need a car for what I was doing. I was going to have to own a car said, but it was so painful to me to have to take possession of that car. You know, and it just, you think, well, gosh, you know, I just buy a car and register it without even thinking about it. And he, he went on in that way to try to communicate to us what it feels like from his perspective. But then he said something very interesting. He said, but most of you, he said, but you should, not most of you, he said, but, but you should not even think about living at this level of renunciation. He said, it's not right for you. But at the same time, it's this fine, fine line. It's this thin line between the desert and the stone that we have to walk, which is where, on one hand, we have to really know 
what is asked of us on the spiritual path. And on the other, we have to build our spiritual life out of the true substance of what we are. If we, get, if we get too far into just suppressing our natural inclinations and trying to paste upon our natural inclinations an image of what it is to be spiritual, we go completely nuts. You don't make spiritual progress and you kind of go crazy. Most of the people of the devotees I've known have gone crazy, have gone crazy for that reason. And I've known a few, not large numbers, but a few, because you can make yourself just crazy trying to be something you're not. And more than that, your spiritual life is built upon the actual substance of who you are. But at the same time, don't kid our, let's not kid ourselves. Let's look joyously up to the top of the mountain and realize that even though we are now walking on the plains, we are walking toward the mountain. And the time will come when we'll have put one foot in front of the other long enough to have that really be our true reality. And in this sort of sweetness of this, Omar Khayyam offers to come with us. He says, come with me. He said, and in that space where we, we'll go together into superconsciousness, and then you'll look back on all of it and you'll see that even the Sultan has nothing on you. You know, and it's, it's just so sweet. And all of that is in there. So you just read those four lines over and over again, and all of that, if it doesn't come into your mind, it comes into your, sp- into your spirit in one way or another. Okay, any comments or questions? Yes, Tom. The writing is so both impersonal for you know, just a great piece of literature to be published, but it's also very personal that he had disciples and students. Oh, of course he must have. Yeah, he must have had followers. He was well known as a great scientist. You sort of wonder, you know, the story of George Washington Carver is an interesting story because he was a great scientist and he had many, many students who came to him for science. But he was a great saint and he taught them he taught them to be, to be saintly by teaching them to be good scientists. Nomar Khayyam was an astronomer and a mathematician, and you know, the, all of Krishna's soldiers look like Krishna. We used to joke because Swami Satchidananda's ashram, he was, uh, Satchidananda was an airplane mechanic. He had a great attunement to automobiles. Once uh, he was out in his car, and he said, there's something wrong with this car, and they looked at it, and they said, no, it's fine, and Several times they examined it, he insisted that there was something wrong with it. And finally they found there was some hairline crack and some fundamental part that it even would have been dangerous to go out in it. He could just hear that it was off. And his ashram, at that time at least, was full of mechanical people. You know, and, and we at that time, I mean, everybody could sing and dance and play an instrument and write poetry, but I mean, we, couldn't, we couldn't fix a broken doorknob. We just, and, and that was just Swami's way. He just didn't have any attunement with machines, and almost no one else did either. I mean, since then we've balanced a lot, and Satchidananda's ashram used to ask us where we got all these musicians, and because that's what it was like. Now, Omar Khayyam was born with this scientific orientation, this mathematical orientation. You can bet that a lot of souls who were drawn to him were just like him, because that was his particular expression of the divine, and so people who, who saw God through those, you know, mathematics to those who are attuned to it is a, a very spiritual science. In fact, one man who is a mathematician, it was wonderful the insight he gave me because I've never had any understanding of it at all. Uh, Rich McCord, he doesn't like us to say this, Gyandev, he has actually has a PhD in mathematics from Stanford. And part of, part of you asks how, but the other part of you says why? 
<laughs> and then he gets this very dreamy look in his eye and tells you how magnificent an experience it was to study math, you know, on that level in that way. But, uh, let's see now, let me find my thought again. Oh yes, this man who was studying mathematics said to me, and I expressed my complete incomprehension. He said math made him a devotee because mathematics taught him that if the answer was not harmonious and beautiful, it wasn't true. And he, he learned that in math, and then he looked around at life, and he kept having these, like trying to draw negative conclusions about the experience of life. This, you know, as atheism over materialism would do, you would look and you would just see it as a disturbing place that was going nowhere. But then he remembered in math, if the answer is not harmonious and beautiful, it's not the true answer. And that thought wouldn't leave him until he was able to attune himself on a deeper level to the world around him and begin to see divine solutions. Isn't that interesting? So I can imagine, for those who are attuned to it, it must have been thrilling to be with one who saw the mystery of the universe revealed. Yes, but uh, Pam? I was just a village guy named Yeah. He was talking about uh, having been a man. Uh-huh. He's a doctor, record, right. but... But sort of uh-huh. that. Yeah. <laughs> but, but then he talked to, and I don't remember what spiritual leader it was, but he insisted that his uh, students and disciples study math because it was a way of getting into the realm of non-material reality. Yes, in fact. Yeah, it's a thing that I Oh, ma- many, uh, many people who are saintly and mathematical speak of it. It's just being, you know, an extraordinary adventure in the divine. I've grown to respect it without it, without being at all. In, I mean, it was presumptuous of me not to respect it. I just was. It, I found it incomprehensible. That's all. Well, Dharma. Is it possible that uh, Vigeshwaras? Oh, my friend. Hmm. I've never heard it said. Certainly, Sri Yukteswar didn't exhibit the the poetical side, but nonetheless, he certainly exhibited the scientific side. I never, I never heard it said. It's a, it's a, a lovely thought. You, I mean, Swamiji once said. He once pointed out how 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 much of the history of the spirit of this planet involves our masters. You know, Christianity, Krishna, Buddha, not Buddha, Krishna, um, Christ, that's what I meant to say. Krishna, Christ, Kabir, you know, Janaka, uh, Shankara took discipleship from Babaji, you know, just, it just keeps going. William and Swamiji raised, and I think I shared with you after he raised it, he raised the thought that, that our masters are more or less in charge of this planet, and that other, maybe there's other groups of masters who run other planets because our masters seem to be sort of all-pervasive on this planet. And I'm speaking to the faithful here. This isn't the kind of thing that you go out and say to people who are just beginning, because it sounds bizarre, and it, it, it's, it can too easily turn into delusions of grandeur. But it's just an interesting thought, isn't it, when you really reflect on it? You know, we, again, you see it's all in our perspective. We just think that this planet is so big that it must take a lot of masters to run it, but maybe it doesn't. I, I was amused 
um, uh, Swamiji has just finished Goddess for Everyone, and he had this thought that it would be wonderful to... Uh, he actually called up and he said, you know, maybe we get the Archbishop of Canterbury to endorse this book or write a preface or a forward for it. He said, we certainly couldn't get the Pope to do it because the Pope wouldn't do it. But the Archbishop of Canterbury is very broad-minded and extremely interested in interreligious things. And see, where was I going to go with that? Oh, and so I actually spent a lot of the early morning and today following through, and I'm pleased to say that everybody who answers the telephone at the Archbishop of Canterbury's place is very nice. I got a lot of nice English people to talk to me today, even though I would have to say things like, I think we have a poor connection. Could you speak a little more slowly? <laughs> because <laughs> the accents were impossible. Um, but whenever Swamiji is dealing, see, we sort of look at that and we think, well, he's, you know, we see these people as far away. But Swamiji has been a king and a, a leader, a world leader for so many incarnations that that's kind of the level on which he moves. I heard him, I've heard him so many times, this is before the present chaos in Israel, but he would, he would speak so emphatically about how Israel simply cannot give up the Golan Heights because of the military advantage involved there, that now that they have obtained them, they simply cannot give them up. Now that's a simple political statement, but Swami would always say it from the position of being the king who had possession of the Golan Heights and would not give them up. And he spoke of the Dalai Lama as, is in some kind of a chaotic position because it, India has now recognized China, and that's put all the Tibetans in India into a very tough spot. So Swami didn't want to bother the Dalai Lama with this book because he's got this whole other thing to deal with. And many times whenever Swami talks about people who run countries, it's like he's talking about like the people who run our communities. <laughs> or like, you know, I would talk about Rick, or I would talk about Ananta, who's in Sacramento. I mean, a counterpart. Swami will talk about kings and, and world leaders and nation builders. And, but of course, that's where he's been. That's what his reality has always been. And it's just a question of perspective. And so when we sort of talk about maybe these masters are just the masters who run this planet, it's really not a presumptuous thing to say. It's actually just a very interesting question. And we need to, in fact, ourselves be open-minded enough to think about these things, all of which came from the question of who was Omar Khayyam and how did he play and who knows. But he must have had some role. This can't be, I mean, you know, there's, there's three scriptures that Master has, has commented on, the Rubaiyat, the Bible, and the Gita. So we're not talking about a small reality here. Yeah. Who knows? I mean, this is just the beginning. This book is barely known. It's presently out of print, although it will be reprinted. You know? So, who knows? I mean, the Rubaiyat was lost for a very long time, and this is the first time in all its history it's ever been explained. So where will it go from here? Lovely to contemplate, isn't it? And say, so we'll have to contemplate it more next week because we're probably just about finished. I know I didn't do a very thorough job on these because I knew we had a lot of other things to do. But, is that all right? Okay, God bless you. We'll see you next Tuesday. Two Rubaiyat a day and three on Sunday. <laughs> um, I think Joe, Joe, would you be kind enough to print the next fifteen? Tom is appreciating. Would you mind?